Good morning, everybody. We want to invite children to Children's Church. Um, if you uh, want to go to that, that's just an age-appropriate setting to hear the Bible uh, for our kids. And so they're heading out the back, and your teacher will take you. That's for grades one through three. And uh, let's open with a word of prayer. Lord, we come now to your text, to the Bible that you've inspired, this wonderful book that you wrote over thousands of years, to hear what you have to say to us today in Lancaster, in this building this morning. Uh, Lord, it is amazing to think that your word is living and active, that it is still applicable today. Um, and we thank you that you have given us such a tremendous gift. Uh, Lord, may we treasure what you have to say for us. And I pray that we would heed it, that we would sink it deep into our hearts and our minds, and that we would trust in you. Father, I want to pray for uh, our friend church, uh, Revive AV. I pray for Pastor Jeff this morning as he's bringing your word to the people there. Lord, would you fill him with your spirit to see, speak the words that they need to hear in the way that they need to hear it. We pray that you would fit them for the service that you've called that church to and that they would see um, just a, a bountiful work of your spirit in their midst, that they would see the fruits of their labors uh, pay off as they follow after Jesus in the way that you've called them to. And we want that same thing for us, Lord. Would you do those same, same things in, in this church here? And uh, so, Lord, be with us now. Help us to hear and to understand your word. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're, we're um, in the book of Acts, and the, the theory, my approach to the book of Acts is, you know, it's following on after the gospel of Luke. And Luke was about, this is what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. And so when we get to Acts, what he's saying is, this is disciples of Jesus making disciples of Jesus. And that's been kind of the theme that we've been seeing so far. Um, where we're at this morning now is, is kind of the resolution to the story that we began last week, and that is this man Cornelius. Um, last week we heard about the preparation, all that God was doing to bring him here, uh, bring uh, Peter to him, and now we're going to hear about what happens when Peter shows up. Um, there's a little bit of repetition in this, and actually in this story, which is 10 and the first part of 11, there's a lot of repetition. The story gets told three times. So when God repeats a story three times, I think he really wants you to get it. <laughs> this is something he wants you to hear. Um, he's saying it again and then again and again. So uh, we'll hear it this week, and then next week when we watch Peter go and report to the church, we'll hear the whole thing again. And, uh, and that's okay. I, I promise to try to not be boring and <laughs> preach the same sermon twice. But this morning, what we see is this, this new thing in Acts again. Um, the, the, the gen Jesus is coming to the Gentiles, not like he did with the Ethiopian eunuch who went home. This centurion is going to receive Jesus, and he's going to stay in Caesarea. Now, that means that he's going to associate with other Jews who are believing in Jesus. And so this is really this inbreaking, this new ground that God's breaking and saying, how do we get the Gentiles and the Jews to live together in harmony? And so that's what we're going to see this morning is Jesus come to these Gentiles. There's a, deal, a good deal of preparation. Then there's proclamation. And in the end, the great news is there's salvation. So that's what we're going to see this morning. So the preparation, um, it starts by uh, explaining how um, Peter got up and went with them. Well, who's them? Uh, remember last week, Cornelius had a vision, or uh, an angel visit, visited him and said, send people to Simon the Tanner and ask for Simon Peter at his house and bring him back here. That was his, his command. And at the same time, Simon Peter's having this vision of 
food. And, and when he wakes up from his vision, there's three people standing at the door going, hey, is Simon Peter here? And so he invites them in, and now it says the next day they rose. The problem was Joppa was about a full day's journey from, uh, from Caesarea. So he couldn't leave that afternoon because they'd be traveling at night, and they didn't have streetlights back then. And the security was a bit dodgy, so they are only going to travel during the day. So what he does is he asks them to come in, and then um, they will depart the next morning. They'll take off, and they'll go back to Caesarea. Um, don't let that sneak past you. When they came and they knocked on the door, and Peter said, yeah, I'm the guy you're looking for, there's a Roman soldier standing there and two other people who are the servants of a Roman soldier. They were probably Gentiles as well. And Peter looks out and he says, come on in and spend the night. He invited Gentiles into his house. Now remember Simon the Tanner, his house was right on the beach. He could have looked out the window and said, oh, that's what you guys want? Okay, we'll, we'll leave in the morning. Find some place to camp on the beach. You'll be fine. But you, know, you can't come in, in this house because you're a Gentile. He doesn't do that. We already get this hint that Peter's beginning to get it. God has torn down the distinction between Jew and Gentile. It's already happening. So the next morning, he rose and went with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. Some of the brothers. Now, remember last week I made a kind of a big point about the fact that Luke didn't have to tell us the guy's house that he was staying at. He didn't have to tell us his name. But he said it was Simon the Tanner. And then he differentiated inside Simon, who is called Peter. And I, I made a little bit of a, a stink about that. This is kind of proves my point here. Does he name the people who went with Peter? They don't get mentioned. Does he name the, the, the Roman guard and the two guys that came with him? They don't get mentioned. Yet they're central to the story. They move with him. They're in a number of places. Simon the Tanner, we don't even meet the guy. So why, again, did Luke mention it? because I think he wanted to call attention to Simon, who is called Peter, and why is he Peter? Because on him, the church will be built. And so this week, we, we're going to see that church being built. That's what's, that's what's about to happen. So they take off the next day, and it says that there were some brothers with them. Um, what we'll learn from 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 12, is there were six. Make out of that what you will. I'm not sure what the significance of it is, but there were six. So it was a large entourage. There's three Gentiles came, and there's seven Jews go back with them to, to Caesarea, the six plus, um, plus Simon. And so when they get there, Cornelius was expecting them. He, he knew that they were coming, and he knew about how long that trip would be. So he said, well, I sent my servants yesterday at about this time. They should get there at about this time. They'll probably spend the night. They'll be back today. So what's, what Cornelius does, does in that meantime is he calls together his relatives, his household, and it also says close friends. The words there for close friends mean these, these loved ones, these ones who are so intimate with him. So it wasn't just, you know, hey, buddy, uh, are you interested? He called together his family and his closest associates, and he has them wait at his house. Something's coming, you guys. I don't know what is going to go on, but an angel told me to go get this guy, and he's coming. You really want to be here. You really want to come for this. And, and that's this idea of inviting others into your life, inviting others in to be part of what God's doing in your life. It, it's a beautiful thing to, to not think that you have to just stand on a street corner and shout. Sometimes you can just invite people in and say, look at what God's doing in my life. 
This is really amazing. Isn't it great how he's doing these things? In those mission trips that we took to, to China, we would often see that. The ones in Egypt especially, is somebody would go, oh, hey, these people are coming over to tell me about Jesus. Come on over and hear this. And, and there's this excitement. So this is that idea of you can just invite people into your life and, and watch and see what God's going to do. Pray, Lord, would you do something in this person? Then just watch and see what happens with them. It, it's a beautiful way of doing evangelism just by being there and, and being open and honest. So Cornelius has this group assembled. And um, he said that uh, he had called together his close friends and associates. And so when Peter arrives, Cornelius fell down and worshipped him. That's a curious thing, isn't it? That kind of made me stumble a little bit. I was like, wait a minute. I thought he was a, a, a believer. I thought he was you know, following after Yahweh and, and that kind of stuff. Well, the NIV alone, it's the only modern translation that says, fell at his feet in reverence. And the word for worship could be reverence, but pretty consistently the way it's used is worship. It, that, that's usually what it means. And also, if you look at Simon Peter's response to that, it wasn't reverence. It was, don't worship me, I'm a man. I'm a human being just like you, so just you stand up. So it's clear that, that Cornelius fell and worshipped him. What's up with that? Why would he do that? If he's, if he's a, a, a proselyte, if he's, he's not quite converted to Judaism, but he's, he's with them, he knows that there is one true God. Um, what it is, is this was the, the, the way that reverence was expressed in those days would come across as worship. And sometimes it would branch into worship, like emperor worship. You had to offer sacrifice to the emperor. He claimed he was the son of God, that kind of thing. So Cornelius is just being a man of his time. This isn't a good thing for him to do, and he needs to not do it. And he gets told, don't do that. But that's what happened is he falls down and he worships. And Peter's response is, stop. That actually is a really fascinating thing that Peter did because other people didn't. Other people wouldn't do that. As a matter of fact, um, there's another time where somebody fell down at somebody's feet and worshipped him, and the person said, no, stand up. And that's in Revelation chapter 19. John, This angel appears before John, and he falls down in worship, and the angel says, no, you stand up. I'm a servant with you guys. And so you've got now a human being who refuses worship and an angel who refuses worship. But look at this. When the Magi, the three wise men, the unknown number of wise men. Christmas is coming up. We've got to get this straight. The unknown number of wise men come into Bethlehem and they find Jesus. They offer their gifts and they worship him. Now, obviously, Jesus is too young to stand up and go, no, don't do that. Mary and Joseph could have interrupted, and they don't. Then in Matthew 14, the, um, the people in the boat, there was a storm, and they're in the boat, and Jesus calms the storm, and it says in Matthew 14, they stopped and worshiped Jesus. Jesus, who just commanded a storm to stop, didn't look at these guys and go, no, 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 stop, don't do that. He says nothing. Matthew 28, after his resurrection, he's, he's risen from the dead. The women go to the tomb to get him, to prepare his body, and they run into him. And when it finally dawns on them, this is Jesus who's risen from the dead, they worship him. And the resurrected Jesus doesn't stop them. In Luke 24, 52, that's right before Jesus ascends. He, he goes to the Mount of Olives. He's about to ascend into heaven. He goes. And the, the people are standing, looking up into the sky, and an angel says, don't look up there. He's coming back the same way. Um, go do what you're supposed to do. They stop on the mountain, and they worship him. And the angel doesn't zap them. He doesn't knock them dead for what they did. And then the man I mentioned last week, the man born blind in, in John chapter 9, after he gets all of this rigor, he gets healed of his blindness, 
He goes to the, the, uh, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, and they get on him and tell him, you're full of sin and you're a terrible person because you got healed. <laughs> Go figure that one out. When he goes back to the temple to thank God, Jesus comes in and runs into him and says, you know, you should thank, uh, thank God for this. And he says, well, he says, no, Jesus said, do you believe that I am, the, um, or do you believe in the Messiah? And he goes, well, who is he? He says, you're looking at him. The man drops down and worships him, probably in the temple. And Jesus doesn't stop him. Everybody else who receives worship incorrectly either dies or they yell stop. And the one that I'm thinking of, I don't want to, I hate to jump ahead, but I got to mention it. Herod works this deal out with another country and, and says, yeah, I'll continue to provide food. And the people start yelling, oh, this is the voice of a god. And Herod just kind of sits back and sucks it up. And God zaps him and worms eat him. Don't let anybody worship you, okay? There is one man that's worthy of worship. There's one man who can bear our worship, who can carry it, who can have the glory and the power to endure our worship, and that's Jesus Christ. So Peter, when he gets there, he says, no, don't do this. I'm just a human being. Jesus is a human being, but he's more than a human being. There's, there's much more, and we'll see that in a moment. Peter is going to explain that. He's going to unpack that for us. So he says, stand up, for I too am a man. The next thing he says is he introduces himself to Cornelius, and he says, um, you, know, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate or to visit anyone of another nation. In other words, Cornelius is so associated with, with um, Judaism, he's been so close to it that he knows, he's probably had this experience a number of times, hey, would you guys, after synagogue, would you like to come back to my house? <laughs> no, thank you. Um, we can't do that. So Peter looks at him and says, you know how illegal it is. How illegal is it? You'll search in vain through the Old Testament to look where it says, <coughs> you Jews never even step into the house of a Gentile. You won't find it. As a matter of fact, there's cases where Gentiles are brought into the nation of Israel. Rahab, a harlot, a prostitute, is brought in and married into the, the tribe of, or the nation of Israel. She wasn't held off at arm's distance saying, well, you stay outside the camp. So where does Peter get this idea that it's unlawful? How unlawful? It's extremely unlawful for us to even go in your house. Where does he get that idea? It was from rabbinical teaching in the, uh, in the uh, Mishnah. And the Mishnah was these writings of the rabbis who were interpreting uh, scripture and interpreting circumstances and trying to explain things. And there's one verse in one of the Mishnah that says exactly what Peter said. It's extremely, un you will be way unclean if you go into the house of a Gentile. And don't even think about eating with them. So Peter is still Jewish, isn't he? He's still very Jewish. He's still got these teachings in mind. And God is going to work on him to bring him along to get him through this. That's one of the amazing things is this inclusion of the Gentiles in the church didn't happen in the snap of a finger. The church wrestled with this for years. It took them a long time to get it figured out. So Peter is still being Jewish when he says it's unlawful for us to do that. But, I love the way Ramey read that this morning when he read from Ephesians. But God. And then he let that hang for a minute. Sometimes in the Bible, the word but can be the best word ever. And that's what's going on here with, with Cornelius is, is Peter looks at him and says, you know how wrong it is for me to do this, but 
I'm going to do it anyway. Why? Because God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. God has done this. So yeah, the rabbis are saying don't even go into a Gentile's house, but God has done this. So now we have to pause and look back. What was that vision again? The vision was a, a sheet being let down from heaven and opened up, and there's all sorts of critters in there, all sorts of different animals, birds of the air, creeping things. Creeping things are just creepy to begin with, but like lizards and, and snakes and, and ants and all kinds of stuff creeping around in there. And the command was, go and associate with them. What was the command? Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And so do you remember last week when we looked at it, I said, why is Peter confused by this? It seems blatantly obvious to me what that means is you can eat any, any food. But Peter's sitting there looking at it going, I, I don't get this vision. And I'm like, Peter, why, how can you miss that? Well, he got it. As he's pondering it, maybe as he's walking along, heading towards Caesarea, he's got time to chew on this and think about it and go, wow, that really means something. So when he gets there, he says that God has shown him that he should not call any man common or unclean, which is what he said he wouldn't do is eat common or unclean food. So let's pause for just a second and understand why did God in the Old Covenant institute dietary laws? Why did he tell him don't eat shellfish? Why did he tell him don't eat something that clothes the hoof but doesn't chew the cud? Why would he institute these things? And then the birds seems like just an arbitrary list of birds. Eat that bird but not that bird. And it's not like it's all birds of prey or anything. It's just kind of an odd mix. What was up with that? This is a good time to stop and ask that question because it ends here. It's over. So let's take a look at this. First of all, it starts off in Leviticus 20, 23 through 26. And there in Leviticus it says, You shall not walk in the customs of the nation that I am driving out before you. For they did all these things, and therefore I detested them. But I have said to you, you shall inherit the land, and I will give it to you a, as um, I will give it to you a, pro, a ah, sorry I will give it to you to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean, the clean bird from the clean, or the, the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make yourselves detestable by beast or by bird or anything by which the ground crawls which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me, for I am the Lord, am holy, and have separated you from the people that you should be mine. Isn't that interesting? I have separated you. I have called you out as a separate, as, as a distinct people. Therefore, don't walk in the ways of the nations by eating these foods. So it appears from Leviticus 20 that this dietary restriction that God gave them had the purpose of setting Israel distinct from the rest of the nations. So there's, there's some theories that say, well, it's because those foods weren't good for you. I love bacon. Don't tell me bacon's not good for me. <laughs> I had just a wonderful pork chop this week. Don't tell me that's not good for me. Any food could be not good for you if it's not handled properly. It's safe to eat pork. We can eat it and not get sick because we handle it properly. So that may be part of it. It may be that you know they didn't have sanitation standards back then. But there's more to it than that. There's a richer meaning because of the way it's resolved. So first of all, those dietary rules were given to separate Israel, to make them a unique people that stand on their own so that they would be distinct and visibly distinct from the nations. 
So that's when it was enacted. That's when we, we had it delivered. There's another curious one that happens in Mark chapter 7, where it says, um, Jesus did this when the Pharisees challenged him. Oh, I'm sorry, it says um, that Jesus declared all foods clean. It's a parenthetical statement. In your Bible, if you see it, it's got parentheses around it. There's no parentheses in, Hebrew, or in Greek. It's set off as a, or as a parenthetical statement because Mark is interpreting what just happened. Well, what just happened? What happened in Mark chapter 7 is the Pharisees start getting on Jesus. Why is it that you don't have your, your, your uh, disciples wash their hands when they come back from the market? That's the tradition of the fathers. How come you don't do that? Now, we would do that because the market's a dirty place, and you get goop on your hands, and you don't want to, you know, you wash your vegetables, for heaven's sake. You wash your vegetables, right? Just, just nod and say, yeah. The reason that they did it in Israel is because if you go to the market, there is a really good possibility you may touch something that a Gentile made. You may pick up a pot that a Gentile touched. And so when you come back to your holy sanctuary, your house, you need to wash the Gentile off your hands. And so what Jesus says is what goes into a man doesn't make him unclean. What comes out of him does. What comes out of your mouth. And that's where Mark says, and God and Jesus declared all foods clean. So even there, when Jesus declares all foods clean, it's about the Gentiles and separation from the Gentiles. So it seems like it doesn't quite fit, but it actually does. That's important because now in the new covenant, in the covenant we're in with God, food just is not an issue. And the New Testament has a lot to say about food not being an issue. In 1 Corinthians 8, Paul says, however, not all possess knowledge. Some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to idols, and their conscience being weak is defiled. So some people, back in that day, the best place, the best meat market was the temple. They, they just had the best beef. You know, the, the USDA uh, prime came from the temple. And so people would go to the temple and they would buy the meat and, and take it home. And so what Paul is saying is some people who had such a deep life in that old way of living, when they see that meat and they know it came from a temple, their, their conscience is just troubled because they think it was really offered to an idol. It was offered to a chunk of wood. And so Paul's saying it doesn't matter. So listen where he goes with that. Food will not commend us to God. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. So in the new covenant, God made this huge distinction in the old covenant, don't eat this food. And in the new covenant, Paul, the Jew, looks at him and says, food doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. It doesn't commend us to God. It doesn't alienate us from God. And that's where he goes in, in Romans chapter 14. He's dealing with the same thing. The question there in Romans 14 is, what day of the week should we fast? Because some people were really persnickety about that. Should we fast on this day or that day? And so Paul goes through and he says, you know, the day doesn't matter. It, it really isn't important. And then he goes on and he talks about foods, food. In, in 14.14 he says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself, but is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved at what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. But when you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by man. So you see, the same thing happens there. Paul says, it doesn't matter. But 
Don't do it in a way that's going to cause your brother to stumble. If they really have a, a, a problem with meat sacrificed to idols, don't invite them over and tell them, hey, yeah, this was from Artemis's temple. This is the good stuff. That's horrible. The kingdom of God isn't about that. If, if that's a problem, don't ever eat that food. If it makes your brother weak, don't do that. The kingdom of God, however, is about righteousness and peace and the Holy Spirit. That's the important part. So when we look at the food laws, and the reason they go away at this point is because they were there as a separation. And what Jesus has done in coming and dying on the cross is he has removed that separation. Ramey read it this morning from Ephesians. He has torn down that barricade between the two. So to maintain these food laws is to say there is still a distinction between Jew and Gentile. When Jesus says there's not. He came to make all clean. So that's, this is the preparation that had to happen to get Peter to the point where he would show up in Cornelius' house. Is he had to have this rich theology lesson via vision. He had to have this, this, this impetus to actually go and do it with the Holy Spirit telling them, there's guys down at the door, go with them and don't delay. And it took that much preparation to get Peter to this point. Cornelius had been prepared for a long time. He'd been hearing all about this God of the Bible. And then an angel comes, and so now he's ready. So this is, this is the climax. This is all this anticipation is kind of coming to this head. And so Peter's words, what did you call me here for, are the, are the spark that blows this thing up. It just takes off at this point. So now that's the preparation. Here's the proclamation. Cornelius says, we want to hear everything that God's commanded you to tell us. And so you see this house full of people sitting there, and they're all just leaning forward, looking at Peter. What have you got to say? God has worked in all of them and prepared them. And so Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. That is everything we just talked about. The partiality, the, the food laws, the dietary, the distinction between the people. Surely God shows no partiality. Isn't that the best news you've ever heard? God shows no partiality. That's grace. That is God's grace. Remember, my definition for grace is, is God's unmerited favor, favor that you didn't earn, that comes from God, that's given to you. God shows no partiality. He gives his grace to who he will give his grace. That's great news, folks, because I got grace. You got grace because God doesn't show any partiality. And then he says, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. So is that the end of grace right there? If you fear him and do what's right, so if you do what's wrong, then you're not acceptable to him. I don't think that's what he means. Actually, this is, if you remember last week, I talked about the man born blind. And the example I used is he said, we know God doesn't hear sinners. And I said, that's true that he said that, but that statement is not necessarily true. Depends on what you mean by sinners. And, and I've got to tell you, John is the master of double meanings. He, he does it in such a wonderful way because when he has a double meaning, both meanings are true. Both things. So like in the beginning of his gospel, he says, and, and the light came into the world and the light and the darkness did not comprehend it. The Greek word could also be translated overcome or overpower. So which is true? Both. It's just so I, I love the way John does that. So he does that here with this man born blind as he says, God doesn't hear sinners. Well, what do you mean God doesn't hear sinners? Well, if he means people who sin, well, kind of. 
If they're willfully, you know, warring against God and saying, I don't, I don't want anything to do with them, yeah, he's not going to hear their prayers. When they call out and say, oh, by the way, I've hated you all my life, but really could use some help now? That's not what's going on. It also could be that sinners means Gentiles. And, and that's one way that it's used in the Bible is, is the Jews would look at the Gentiles and call them sinners. So when, when he said that, he said that God will hear those who do right things and, 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 um, and who want to be with him, who, who desire to be with him. And so that's what Peter just said. Is he, he looks at Cornelius and he goes, you're a sinner, Gentile, and God's heard you because you wanted to do what the right thing was and because you sought after him. That's, that's what he wanted is, is in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. So that doesn't mean you have to be sinless. In his own words, Peter's looking at, quote unquote, a sinner, a Gentile. But this Gentile is doing what's right and he fears God. And so that's that next step of preparation is how did Cornelius get to this point where he is wanting to do good and he fears the Lord. God's been working in his life for quite a while. So that, that's where he's at. And so then he begins to preach. Now he begins to preach his message. And what we hear next is Peter's gospel, Peter's truth about Jesus Christ. And I want to just summarize real quick the points that he brings up in it. First of all, he says, Jesus Christ is Lord of all. That's really significant because he's preaching to a Gentile. And what he's saying is Jesus Christ is the Lord not only of the Jews, he's also Jew of, uh, Lord of the Gentiles. He is the Lord of all. That's also pretty advanced Christology for the first century like this. He's looking at Jesus and saying he's not just Lord as in master, he's Lord of all. That's a title in the Old Testament that's reserved for God. God is the Lord of all. He's looking at Cornelius and he says, this Jesus who is Lord of all is, is God, is basically what he's saying. That's a huge theological statement that he makes. He's Lord of all. And then he says, beginning with, and the, the funny thing is, he says, you guys know this. You know this story. So remember all of Luke happening up and down uh, Israel and going through Samaria? It didn't happen in a vacuum. Cornelius has heard the stories about this Jesus guy. He just maybe not got the whole story yet. So God sends him Peter and says, here's the whole story. You know this, Cornelius, after the baptism that John proclaimed. So first of all, Jesus is Lord of all. Then he says, after the baptism that John proclaimed. Why does he mention the baptism? Well, if you notice in the Gospels, that's really where the story starts. It's really where it begins to pick up is when Jesus is baptized. Luke has a rather lengthy pro prologue to it. But the other Gospels pretty much start at that point. John is his own thing. So let's just set John aside for a second. He does mention John the Baptist in the first chapter, but that's where it begins. What happened at Jesus' baptism? Well, at Jesus' baptism, do you remember what happened when Jesus came up out of the water? The heavens ripped open and God yelled out, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove, looking like a dove, settled on Jesus. And that's why it's mentioned in all the Gospels is this is a huge, huge event that Jesus is baptized and God himself shows up in the form of the voice from heaven, in the form of a dove, and in the form of the sun walking up out of the water. It's huge. And then what happened after that is the Holy Spirit sends, sets on him and, and Peter says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. 
So this is the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. God has fitted him with power and with the Holy Spirit. And so what he says next is he went out doing good and healing those who were oppressed by evil, or by the devil, rather. So as Jesus goes about his public ministry and he's healing and he's casting out demons and he's doing all of those things, this is his demonstration of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. All the effects of the fall are going to be undone. The, the disease that has stricken mankind because of the fall, Jesus is breaking that. He's showing he's got power over that. Satan, who comes and oppresses people with sickness and with demon possession, Jesus comes and says, I'm breaking that. This is that picture of the kingdom of God breaking in on this world, on this reality. And it's happening as Jesus is doing his public ministry. So he's doing all this good, and how does Israel respond? They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. Peter mentions the death by crucifixion. Tree is a metaphor. What is wood made out of? Trees. So to say he hung him on a tree doesn't mean they went out and found a tree. It means they hung him on wood. He was hung on a cross. He was crucified. They killed him. Jesus died. They put him to death. But God raised him on the third day. So what we've heard is the death of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So this is the gospel he's preached. And his application of it is, he said, he is appointed, um, Jesus is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. The other half of the gospel is there is a judgment coming and nobody escapes. If you're alive at his return, you get judged. If you're dead at his return, you get judged. There is a judgment coming because Jesus died and rose from the dead. And then he says the good news, the hope. Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. His death and his resurrection wasn't meaningless. It wasn't just an example. It wasn't some pretty picture. It was to break the power of sin so that those who believe in him can have those sins forgiven, can have the power of sin in their life broken. Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness through his name. That's the gospel. Does that sound familiar? Is that the gospel we preach today? It's not, nothing has changed. It's not like the old, the, the early church had one gospel and the modern evangelical church has another gospel. There's the gospel. It just is. And this is the gospel that's preached to the Gentiles. This is the gospel that's brought to those like us who aren't Jewish. And it's the same gospel that's been preached for 2,000 years and will continue to be preached until Jesus returns. On and on and on. We have one message. We have one story to tell. That's it. And in the end, what we have to tell people is, if you will believe in Jesus, and I don't just mean say, yeah, okay, I think he really lived. That, that doesn't go far enough. The devils believe that, and what does it do for them? They tremble. What it means to believe in Jesus in this case is to say, that is how my sins are forgiven, and that's the only way my sins are forgiven. I'm not going to trust in my ability to stop sinning and do nice things and look pretty before God. That's garbage. I'm trusting in the fact that Jesus died to break the power of sin in my life, and that's my only hope. I'm going empty-handed to the throne of heaven and saying, why should I be in? Because Jesus died for my sins. Period. Period. I've got nothing else I can bring with me. Not smuggling anything in behind us as we come. That's what it means to believe in Jesus. That's what we're counting on. And that's the only hope we have. That's the only confidence we have that God will welcome us into his heaven is because we're with Jesus. He canceled our sins. 
That's the gospel. That's the old-timey religion that we're talking about. And by old-timey, we mean 2,000 years old, not from 1950s. It's been around since 2000, or 2,000 years ago. It's around today. And so what's the result of this? We've, heard, we've seen the preparation. God has put all these things in place. He's prepared all of these people. Now he brings Peter, and Peter is faithful to proclaim the message. And here's the result. While Peter was still saying these things, he hasn't even finished the gospel. He's still saying these things. The Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. That's the result of hearing that message. So if you wonder why it is, I've told people this story and they don't believe. They just don't, it doesn't click with them. They go, oh, that's interesting. The one component that's missing, the one part you have no control over is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will come and apply this to their hearts. The Holy Spirit will open their minds and their hearts to hear and believe. The Holy Spirit will give them the gift of faith. And so we go out and we liberally preach the gospel to the nations. We tell people all over the place, if you will believe in Jesus Christ, you can be saved because God shows no partiality. And if they believe, praise God. And if they don't, pray. Cornelius hears this. And he must have been overwhelmed, and then the Holy Spirit came. And as the Holy Spirit descends on him, Peter says they received the Spirit just like we did. Remember Acts chapter 2, Pentecost? The Holy Spirit came, and they came out preaching the gospel. This is great news about Jesus Christ, whom you crucified. The same thing happens with these, these disciples. The Holy Spirit comes, and they just preach. They're, they're speaking in tongues. Now, one of the things I've said, and, and my theory holds, so we'll see if it makes it all the way through the book, is where the Holy Spirit shows up with this kind of power, with visible manifestation of speaking in tongues, at least where Luke mentions it, is always at a cutting edge. It's always at a point where things are different. And this happens with Cornelius because this is a huge cutting edge. They had to see and verify God has saved these Gentiles just like he saved us. <coughs> the Holy Spirit has come upon them just as he's come upon us. They needed to see that. And so what they see is this visible, physical manifestation of the Holy Spirit. And so the response then is, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people? <laughs> Thanks. Um, a little bit of water would be nice. Um, I think that's the first time this has happened to me since I've been here. At least the first time I remember. Um, so if the Holy Spirit is now settled on these people, if they have announced their faith in Jesus Christ, if they've put their trust in him, the next question is, what on earth? why would we not baptize them? Even though they're Gentiles, we've got to baptize these people. He doesn't say um, uh, what requires us to baptize them. Have you ever heard somebody say, well, why do I have to be baptized? Why would you not want to be baptized? That's the picture we're getting here. Or they said, why should I? Why should I be baptized? What, what, what requires me to be baptized? 
you want to do it just because it's a requirement? I can show you requirements. So you want that? That's, that's your motivation? Maybe we shouldn't baptize you. These guys, Peter looks and goes, it is so blatantly obvious we, can't, we cannot withhold the waters of baptism. And doesn't that sound familiar? When Philip met the Ethiopian eunuch and interpreted him Isaiah 53 for him and explained to him who that was talking about, as they're going along, the Ethiopian eunuch says, look, there's water. Why can't I be baptized? It's that same question. So if you're a disciple, you don't look at baptism and go, well, I'm not interested. I, 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 don't, I don't think I have to. The, the, the disciple who got it and is filled with joy goes, of course I want to be baptized. I want to go into Jesus' death and his resurrection in that way. Why would I not? And so that's what Peter did is he commanded that they be baptized. So the household, who knows how many people were there, 300, 200? He's got nine disciples with him or six disciples with him. So he says, let's, let's get these people wet. Let's celebrate. We'll, we'll baptize them all. And so that's what they do is they baptize them. They have now welcomed Gentiles into the church in a visible way. In other words, they're going to have to deal with the Jews who are in the church already. So when this man goes to synagogue next week, he doesn't stay behind the veil. He doesn't stand outside. He doesn't remain cut off. If that's a synagogue that's put their hope in Jesus, he goes and sits with the Jews. That's huge. It was just too big of a change. That's why we have to wrestle through it in Acts and in the epistles and, and on and on. That's where it's going to go. And one more thing. Speaking of wrestling with that question of including the Gentiles, can't press on without mentioning Galatians. In Galatians chapter 2, Peter comes to Galatia and he eats with everybody, but then people from James show up and he withdraws. And not only does he withdraw, Barnabas, dear Barnabas withdraws, and other Jews stop eating with the Gentiles. And what Peter's, or what, I'm sorry, what uh, Paul says in Galatians chapter 2 is, you are not walking in accordance with the gospel. So this idea of reconciliation, this tearing down of the wall, it is a gospel issue. That's what this is, is we can't maintain that distinction anymore. It's a gospel issue. And that was the, the problem that Peter got on, or I mean, uh, Paul got on Peter about. And you look at this and you go, but Peter, how could you do that? You had the vision. Peter, you, you went and you stayed with Cornelius. You ate with the man. You preached the gospel. You watched the Holy Spirit descend on him. How can you do that? Peter, the, you went to the Council of Jerusalem. You heard the good news. How could you do that? Peter's human being just like us, inconsistent, as, as variable as water. Um, have you ever done something like that where you were absolutely convinced something was right, but because of the pressure and the, the, the surrounding thoughts, you begin to believe that it's wrong? You kind of begin to be swayed by the, the surrounding circumstances. It happens. It happens a lot. Um, you could have people yell something at you, and if enough people are saying it, then you begin to go, well, maybe I'm wrong and they're right. So that's poor Peter's problem is he's still a human being. But it's a gospel issue. And listen where Peter goes with this. They ask him to remain for some days. So Peter not only says, it's unlawful for me to step in this house, but he stays there for some days. Some, technical number meaning a lot. That's that same issue at the very beginning with him saying, oh, you Gentiles, yeah, come on in and spend the night. That's that reconciliation happening. That's that breaking down of the barriers. And so what we've seen is this preparation that God does. Now, God may not have prepared you in the same dramatic, huge way that he prepared Cornelius, 
Cornelius was the first Gentile to become part of the church in an established church. It was a big deal for him. But God's been working in your life. And if you stop and reflect on it, you can look back and say, yeah, you know, I, I went this way instead of that way. Uh, the fact that you're sitting here this morning and not rotting in a tomb, God had some purpose in doing that. He, he directed your life in a specific way. He has prepared you so that you could hear this message, so that you could trust in him. He, he's worked in your life. And so this is the response that disciples have. They're overjoyed. They're filled with the Holy Spirit, and they seek out baptism. Why would I not be? What, what, what should keep me from doing this? I want to follow after my master. I want to see where my master goes. And so here we have the, another example of a disciple of Jesus making a disciple of Jesus. Simon Peter, on whom the church would be built, the rock on whom the church would be built, has now taken the next big step to bring in the Gentiles into the church. The church is being built. Jesus' discipleship program with Simon Peter is a success. He got an entrenched Jew to welcome a Gentile into the church. And that's what we're called to do. That's the same thing that we as disciples are called to do, is to follow after Jesus, follow our master, and go where he leads. And that's the good news. Now, next week when we get to chapter 11, when we begin to unpack that, we're going to see the pushback against it. And so we'll hear the story again, and we'll, we'll unpack it again, but you'll see it wasn't uh, amazingly popular. That's a polite way to put that. Um, and, and it's going to continue to be an issue, as I said. But for us, for us, 2,000 years on, hopefully we've learned the lesson. We can look at this in clarity and say, this is what it means to be the church of Jesus Christ. God shows no partiality. Not by race, not by gender, not by economic class, not by intelligence quotient or lack thereof, not by ability or disability. God shows no partiality. Who then can be saved? Anyone. That's tremendous news. And the, the other good news is this is the work of the Holy Spirit. This is not in, this doesn't depend on your ability to say the gospel in the most beautiful, uh, fashionable, appealing, alluring way to woo them in. What it, what it calls you to do is be honest and forthright with the gospel. Jesus Christ died for sins. He was raised on the third day. And if you believe in him, you can be saved. And the Holy Spirit does the rest. That's great. God does the hard part. All I've got to do is speak. That's what it means to be a disciple. That's, that's the picture we're getting of a disciple of Jesus Christ is we're faithful with that story that he's given us. We tell it again and again and again, and then we watch and see what his spirit does with it. So next week, we'll finish up this, this part with Peter and then um, on to Paul after that. We go back to Paul for a while. Um, so let's, let's close in prayer. Lord, we, like Peter, imperfectly get the gospel sometimes. And Lord, I am so grateful that you, had get, that you had given Peter, Paul, to wake him up, to remind him of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that there is no distinction, there is no preference. And Lord, I confess that I am very much human like that too, and I can begin to forget the gospel. I can forget some of the ways that it impacts parts of my life. And so, Lord, would you remind me through the power of your Holy Spirit? Would you tap me on the shoulder once in a while? Lord, would you send me a Paul to remind me, someone to, to call me back to the truth of the gospel? And, Lord, I pray that for all of us, that we would all remember that. Lord, that we would all hold each other accountable. 
Lord, that we would all be watching each other to remind each other regularly of the truth that Jesus died for sins and that there's only forgiveness through him. And so, Lord, what a tremendous truth. Thank you for putting it in your words so clearly. Would you sink it deep into our hearts and our minds, cause us to grasp it, to believe it, and to trust it. And we ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. Amen.